Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. I'm Hugh Atchison. I'm a chef, a restaurateur, a traveler, and now I'm the host of The Passenger. People ask me all the time, you know, what's that list of places to go in this city, in that city? And this show is dedicated to that idea. Immersing yourself in that culture and finding out what's intriguing and what resounds and what we think about the future of that place as a visitor, as a passenger. Subscribe now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Movie Crush. This is Charles W. Chuck Bryant, uh, by day, co-host of Stuff You Should Know, and by night, well, I, this is during the day, too. Let's be serious. But this is Movie Crush, the show where I sit down and talk to uh, awesome people about their all-time favorite movies. And this week in the studio, we have Mr. John Ronson. He is a, a writer of screenplays at times. He is an author of books. He wrote the great book, The Psychopath Test. He wrote the great book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Uh, that's a really good one. They're both terrific. But uh, if you have any interest in uh, sort of the, this weird modern thing we have where people are publicly humiliated uh, in the Internet age and their lives can be ruined, then you really need to read So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It's fantastic. Uh, John, like I said, has also written some uh, screenplays. He wrote the book. Uh, that the movie, The Men Who Stare at Goats, was based on. And he also just recently on, uh, released on Netflix is a great new movie called Okja, O-K-J-A, that you're going to hear John talk about. And he wrote the script for that. And really he's just sort of a jack of all trades. Um, the movie Frank that we're going to talk about a little bit, uh, I hope is, uh, something that John wrote. Um, really, really cool movie with Michael Fassbender. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend that as well. John is just an all-around good guy. We were lucky enough to have him at a Stuff You Should Know live show, um, one of our variety shows where we have kind of different folks doing different things in uh, Brooklyn, New York at the Bell House. And John got up on stage and did a great reading. And um, it's just a lovely, lovely sweetheart of a man. And I really can't uh, say thanks enough to him for being on Movie Crush. And this week we're going to talk about Let the Right One In which is uh, John's all-time favorite movie. And he did not, he's one of these that did not seem to deliberate much uh, about this. I think he kind of knew what his favorite movie was. He's said it before uh, publicly, and he'll say it again, I'm sure. So Let the Right One In is, uh, is a really great movie. It is a foreign film. It's a Swedish romantic horror film. It's how it's officially described. It was uh, directed by Thomas Alfredson. Thomas Alfredson. And it is based on a novel from 2004, and it is the story of uh, of a young boy who is is sort of bullied in school, and he makes the acquaintance of a young girl in his little apartment complex. They meet on the playground, 
And it turns out that she is a vampire and she ends up uh, serving as his protector in the film and sort of avenging the bullies that come after this kid. So uh, at its heart, and John and I talk about this in the interview, but it is very much a a romantic sort of coming of age love story um, sort of couched in this grisly Swedish vampire thing. So really, really good film if you haven't checked it out uh, or the, the remake the American remake, which is called Let Me In, uh, which was also a really good movie. It's one of the few times that uh, American remake, I think, is done right by the original material. But um, I say see them both. Definitely see Let the Right One In if you haven't. It's from 2008, uh, rated R, and uh, just very stark, moody, atmospheric uh, tale told well. So uh, without any further ado, here's John Ronson and Let the Right One In. But you grew up in Wales, is yes, that right? I grew up in Cardiff in Wales. And um, yeah, most of my earliest childhood memories, or in fact, throughout my childhood, my memories are, are my best memories of movies. Uh, so one of my very earliest memories was watching Butch Custy and the Sundance Kid in my parents' bed. Which oh nice yeah which I think was kind of inappropriate actually because the ending of that movie <laughs> is is devastating and it haunt you know it haunted me yeah because you how you, old were you oh, probably four or five um, oh wow and you're watching you're watching people you know the, the the movie freeze frames at the moment of their death and uh, yeah uh, yeah that was that was haunting for me. And then as I got older, there was this arts centre in Cardiff. It's still there, uh, called Chapter, Chapter Arts Centre. And it was the only place in Cardiff that would show, you know, interesting independent films and have interesting, you know, bands and so on. So when I was like 13 or 14, I'd I'd go to Chapter and I remember saw a double bill of uh, Zelig and the King of Comedy, which had a big impact on me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not that either of those movies are like, I mean, they're both great movies, but I wouldn't say either of them are are amazing movies, but still it it gave me a very strong feeling that there was a life beyond Cardiff that I could, I could strive for. Uh, Yeah, I was kind of curious, because when I was a kid, I didn't have the sense that, I don't think I had an understanding that movies were made by people and craftsmen and artists until I was much older. So did you did you know from an early age that like people write these and they act in these and they put them together? A director does. Like, did you understand that? Yeah. When I was when I was very young, I remember going to my grandparents house. My grandparents lived in a really big house in Cardiff, had its own indoor pond. And um, uh, they would listen like my parents and my grandparents would listen to Woody Allen records uh, and, and just laugh and laugh, you know, the... Uh, the moose sketch was it a moose with the co- with the costume? Party? I don't remember. That they run over from a, his uh, stand up. Yeah, they're driving and they run over a moose, and then they've got so then they, you know, they've they've got to like they strap the moose to the front of the car, and then they need to get rid of the moose, and then the moose comes back to life. <laughs> Do you not know this sketch? Yeah, and then they. they I don't think I heard that one. So now they have like a living moose and. 
So they take it to a costume party and pretend it's a couple in a moose outfit. And that's their way of... Anyway, <laughs> I remember um, listening to this and just just screaming with laughter and my parents and grandparents screaming with laughter. And then later on, I, you know, I would see, you know, every Woody Allen movie that came out, I'd see Annie Hall or I saw Manhattan and then, oh, yeah. you know, Zelig and Broadway Danny Rose and, and knowing that Woody Allen was like an auteur. So I think I understood about the craft of film because I was so interested in, in Woody Allen as a kind of, you know, crafts person. Right. That's, that's pretty interesting. I definitely, I wish I would have had that because, well, in a way, though, I kind of was fooled into this like magic of these movies just existing for a while. But uh, conversely, you know, I had an interest in writing movies later on, and I think it would have been nice to know earlier on that that's a thing that you can do for a job. Right. You know? Yes. I remember thinking that movie stars were, you know, impossibly um, non-human. Uh Yeah. You know, seeing those, like, I, I remember thinking, like, if I ever met a movie star, I just don't know what I would do. Because uh, they were just, they were Who just was the first movie star you met? Um, like, proper, I, uh, George Clooney, maybe. Um, I must have met people before him. He, he was in the, the movie adaptation of one of my books. Uh, so I spent, like, a bit of time with him. Like, the first movie star I ever spent some time with was George Clooney. Uh, but I, I must have met movie stars before that. I must have. Um, I mean, the cast, the whole cast of that movie was great. I mean, you had a, a pretty great first experience with an adaptation. Yeah, amazing. I would think, right? Yeah, yeah. I have only happy memories. I think that film, the film's The, the Men Who Stare at Goats, and I've, I've noticed over the years that the film <clears throat> divides people. Some people really love it, and some people don't like it at all. Um, but I'm in the really love it camp. Um, and yeah, so is me Peter. Too. Thank you. And so is Peter Strawn, who, who wrote the screenplay um, for my book. I mean, in fact, a couple of years ago, I was curating a film festival in England in this town called Bridport. And we showed The Men Who Stare at Goats and me and Peter were sat through it and watched it for the first time in years. And at the end of the film, uh-huh. we both sort of turned to each other and kind of, you know, nodded like it's, it's still good. It's right. a good film. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, and then, that's a good feeling. Yeah, and in fact, it was Peter who convinced me to try and write screenplays myself. So me and him then wrote uh, the movie Frank uh, with Michael Fassbender right. in it. And then on the back of Frank, I got to co-write uh, this new film, Ukja, which is just out on Netflix. So, so now I've been involved oh, yeah? in a few films. Yeah. No, no, what's that one? What's that new one? Ukja. It's a. It's a. It's a film directed by Bong Joon-ho. Uh, it's just come out on Netflix and it's about a girl and her best friend is a giant pig uh, the size of an elephant and then the pig uh-huh. gets kidnapped by Tilda Swinton and taken to New York and Mija, the girl, has to get her pig back before it ends up um, in the slaughterhouse. Okay. Wow. Is this a, your original idea or? No, it's Bong Joon Ho's original idea and he brought me on to, to co-write it from the second draft. Oh, okay. Onwards. It's, 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 if I may make so bold, uh, it's good. It's a good film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and a lot of people like it. It's a, it's, not, it's a good film that's 
liked. It has a very um, sort of haunting ending and lots of people find themselves sobbing uncontrollably when the film ends and then they film themselves sobbing uncontrollably and then post the film on, on Twitter oh, wow. or Instagram. So I've seen a lot of people crying uh, because of Interesting. because of our film. Well, I'm going to watch that tonight. Yeah, Okja. And I'm not just saying that. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a yeah it's a it's a it's a good film it's a very good film well i th- i think one thing i've always appreciated about i mean not only your books but men who stare at goats and frank is just your uh just your purview on life is always uh slightly left of center just um, which is something i've always been drawn to <laughs> oh yeah yeah well just from the description it sounds pretty interesting it is um, but um, Frank, how how did Frank come about? Aside from that, sort of being not your life story, but at least a, a portion of it was true to you. Yeah, um, <clears throat> when Peter Strawn was writing the screenplay of The Men Who Stare at Goats, I wrote a piece in the Guardian <clears throat> uh, about my years when I was just in my early twenties playing keyboards for this band in Manchester called the Frank Sidebottom Band and the singer wore a big fake head right. that he never took off. So I wrote this little memoir in The Guardian about it because the singer, uh, Chris, um, who, who was underneath the uh-huh. Frank head, was staging a comeback and he wanted some help, so he asked me to write something. Um, so Peter called me up after the piece appeared and said that he had always wanted to write a fictional music biopic. He always had this idea, he uh-huh. said, like, what if Captain Beefheart had been around in the 50s? Um, right. So, um, but then he said, but your idea is better. And, um, and, but I, I, I didn't have an idea, so I didn't really know what he was talking about. But I suppose what he was talking about was, what if we write a film where the lead singer wears a big fake head that he never takes off? Um and yeah, so was it fictionalized then? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, I mean, some of it was true. The way that the character John, based on me, joins the band was very true to life. About just sort of happening okay. on this group and and getting to join us in a very kind of Alice of the Looking Grass way. Um, but then we we bought a bunch of other. We sort of made a fictional. I guess Frank, at its heart, is like a sort of fictional mashup of a bunch of different stories about outsider musicians. So there was our our Frank, right. which was Frank Sidebottom with the head. And then a lot of the film was inspired by Daniel Johnston. Do, do you know him? The um, Oh yeah. Yeah, the um bipolar. Big fan of his. Yeah, he's wonderful. A bipolar singer songwriter whose life has been a, a sort of battle between his I I guess his talent and his and his uh um, yeah. disorder. Uh, there's an amazing documentary, probably my favourite documentary I've ever seen, was made about Daniel Johnson called uh, The Devil and Daniel Johnson. Um, yeah, I've seen it. It's uh, it really, like, amazing. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Just one of, one of the best ones I've seen in a long time. I think I saw that. I think I saw it when it was, when it was out in the theatre, actually. The Devil and Daniel Johnson is the best documentary I've ever seen about mental health, and it's probably the best documentary I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, and he really um, – I think I saw that and Marwin Call within the same like six or eight months. Right. Did you ever see that documentary? No, but I've met, I've met the guy. 
Um, oh, really? I, yeah, I've been to his house and, and I've, I've hung out with him. Oh, my God. Bit. Yeah, you should explain what Moan Coal is because people won't know. Well, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have seen it by now, but it's um, – what was his name or what is his name? Oh, God, I've been to his house as well. His name is – is uh his name is Mark Hogan Camp. Um and he woke right. up one day, Mark Hogan Camp. I know I asked you to tell the story, but I tell it in an especially good way, so will I tell it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's because I had to I wrote about him, so I had to work out the best way of telling his story. So he woke uh-huh. up one day in an unfamiliar room and there was a man standing, he, he was in pain, so he knew something had happened. And the man standing at the end of his bed said, do you, do you know where you are? And he said, yeah, I'm in Ibiza, and it's 1984. And the man said, no, you're in upstate New York, and the year is 2000. And a few days ago, some men almost beat you to death. Um, and the first thing he said was, I forgive them. And the man at the end of his bed said, you wouldn't forgive them if you knew what they did to you. So they gave him brain damage um, because he was trans. Um, and so they, they beat him up. Anyway, part of his way of recovering from this was to create this world in his garden of these this incredibly elaborate world um, set in World War II. And it's called Marwen Cole. And it's just it's all done with like Barbie dolls. And he's, you know, creates this sort of empire. And it's him reenacting his beating, but getting revenge on the people who did it by killing them in all these kind of horrendous ways. Um, So I wrote about him and there was that documentary made about him. And now I believe uh, there's going to be a movie about him made by the guy who did Forrest Gump, maybe? (laughs) Oh, uh, the uh, Zemeckis, Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis is making a movie about him, um, which is half set Boy, in his actual life and half set in in the the fictional world that he created. Does that worry you? Um, no, it'd be good. I think it might worry him. You think? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. I think when you. I don't know. I think I'm one of those people that thinks when you make a documentary that so completely nails it that mm-hmm. uh, you can only mess things up by trying to, you know, yeah. get uh, – although, like, you put Michael Fassbender in a giant head. So what am, <laughs> who am I talking to here? <laughs> um, I uh, – and not only that, but I had Tilda Swinton kidnapping a giant pig in Oakja. Right. <laughs> um, I, um, uh, I'll tell you what slightly worries me is that I think the best movie that could possibly made uh, be made about somebody's inner life where you kind of recreate their actual life and then their fantasy world has already been made and it was Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures. Oh, God, what a great movie. Yeah, one of my... It links, I think, to Let the Right One In. I, I've noticed over the years that all the things I love the most are in some way related to a kind of dysfunctional childhood friendship. That, that for some reason, that moves me more than anything else. And that's what Heavenly Creatures is about. And that's what the movie I've chosen for you is about, too. Here's the thing. 
Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join us. If you want. Obviously, we'd never force anyone to just blindly join us. That'd be crazy! But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please join us on Spotify. Visit Spotify.com slash last podcast to listen free. So with Let the Right One In, were you uh had you read the book previously or have you since? Um no and no, I, I, I started reading the book since and, and liked it very much, but I think my, my just attention, my attention wandered and, and I never got back into it, but, but I, but I liked what I, what I read. Yeah. Cause there were, um, I, I mean, I saw the movie when it came out, um, on, I guess, uh, I guess it was Netflix. So after the theatrical release and this is sort of in that, I think, um, Girl with the Tra- uh, Dragon Tattoo was, about a year after that. So my wife and I, uh, Emily and I were watching these, you know, Swedish films thinking like, what, where have we been? Like, why is every <laughs> Swedish movie coming out amazing? Mm. And, um, just rewatch Let the Right One In today, uh, like minutes before I came in. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's an amazing movie and just, um, I'm kind of curious. What was your first experience seeing it? Well, I think that does relate to the fact that it it's my favorite movie, like the way that I got to see it. Um so my I remember my wife and son were away somewhere, so I was alone in our house in London. I was in London. And it was on at the Barbican, which is this, you know, amazing. I don't have you ever been to London and and the Barbican? I haven't been to the Barbican, but I've been to London a few times. Right. So I guess, but, I mean, I live in New York now, and I guess the Barbican is probably the closest to Lincoln Centre in New York. It's this big uh, oh, okay. centre in East London. Um, it's very kind of brutalist. It was made in the 60s, so it looks it looks incredible. It looks like a kind of, you know, like you're inside a J.G. Ballard book, uh, kind of brutalist right. and quite harsh. Um, but it's amazing. It's an amazing place. Anyway, so, but it's quite austere. So I was in the Barbican. I was on my own. My wife and son were away. I didn't know anything about the film. And I do think, you know, every film benefits from you not knowing anything about it. Like nobody, I think, writes a screenplay thinking, um, that, that anybody should watch this film other than going into it with, with no knowledge at all. But very few people right. do, right? I mean, you pretty much every film you see, you know a little bit, you know something about the film before you go in, which is a shame, right? Because that's because no no movie person wants a film to be watched that way. Um, yeah, sure. It's With any kind of preconceived uh, thoughts. Yeah, you know a yeah. little bit about the plot. You know something. You know, you you really want to see a film where you know nothing, and it's such a privilege when when you 
see a film that way. And that was the way I saw Let the Right One In. And it's you, it's a perfect film to see that way because uh, because uh, you don't even know for the first 20 minutes of the film, you don't even know what genre it is. You don't know what yeah. you're watching. Um, and then very slowly the kind of genre of the film unveils itself to you, which is the first great thing about the film. Uh, anyway, I... You know, people uh, sometimes talk about a piece of art like like screwing them up, like getting inside their psyche and mangling it. Like, you know, yeah. you've, you've heard people say that about things, right? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. Um, it had never happened to me. Like, I'd never seen a film that, that really, um, if I can swear for a moment. Uh, that, that, oh, yeah, we're, okay. we're fine. Okay, that really kind of fucked with me uh, right <laughs> but let the right one in did i i i watched it and i walked back from the barbican to my house alone and i lay in bed and i thought that film's really fucked with me it, it kind of it impacted my mental health in a way that I, that stuff never does um, and i think i know yeah why. well i know what you go on well why's that well no no, no. i want to hear why okay because i think it, it was prodding at at a sort of very deep sort of psychology of mine because what's the film you know really about it's about it's about a kid at school being bullied and yeah and a and a beautiful girl comes along and and kills the bullies on on his behalf yeah it's like the inverse of a kind of white knight movie right because it's a it's a girl um saving a boy so yeah so i think it kind of just prodded it at stuff that, like a deep well of weird psychology that was going on inside of my head yeah i think um well one of my favorite things in movies is when uh, bullies get their comeuppance mm. and um like you were talking about before with you don't even know what genre it is um i don't even think you fully understand that until after it's over because at, at first you know the first kill that happens with um her her caretaker uh you think before you even know that he's a caretaker you think oh all right well this is a, a serial killer movie right but there was something about the um workmanlike way he went about that first kill that just made it slightly off to where you know like there's something else going on here yeah um he's he's collecting blood as if it is his job yes yeah that's right you know and he's you know he looks a bit he looks like he's not having a great time doing it he's a bit forlorn yeah like, here we go again right <laughs> <laughs> and that's the case you know as the movie unfolds that's exactly what's going on mm. um and i i, I kind of didn't i liked how the movie didn't really explain why um it leaves it open to an interpretation why this guy was doing it. And my thought was that perhaps he had met and fallen in love with Ellie when he was 12 years old. Yes. And this is him just sort of paying it forward. But um, yeah, and I hope this doesn't ruin anything, but I, I did look up bits of the book. And um, do you know what his deal was? Apparently in the book, he's a pedophile. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which they don't allude to in the movie, and I'm glad they didn't. Um, I'm glad Because they once didn't. I found that out, it, ah. yeah, it, it wasn't as 
I don't know. I, I didn't like that turn. No. Yeah, for real. Well, especially because the the end of the movie is so bittersweet and so haunting because you Yeah. I mean, you know, we're we're talking about this and assuming that anybody listening to this doesn't mind like total spoilers. Spoilers? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the kind of the case with all these. Okay. Cuz so at the end of the film you're 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 all at once seeing Oscar at a moment of total happiness. He's mm-hmm. The bullies are dead. He's got the girl. They're going to go off for a fantastic new life together. They're, it's at a moment of perfect, infinite happiness. But you also know at the same time, you know, Oscar's going to grow up and have to do all the, all the same shit for Ellie, who's going to stay exactly the same age as her old caretaker did. And yeah, it's not going to be a good life for him. Yeah, I think that was... I mean, that was definitely something I wanted to ask you if you got that same feeling, which is now that kind of very, like you said, bittersweet, very sadly, he's almost doomed to a, a life now. Doomed to a terrible life, which will end just as awfully as as her old caretaker's life ends. Boy, which that was a bad ending yeah. for him. But it's not her fault. That's the other thing. It's not like Ellie's a, a bad person. She's not. You know, she's she's stuck in this situation, too. So you can't blame her. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a lot of sympathy for that character, and the um, the the girl who played her, uh, her name's Lena Leanderson. Mm-hmm. She really like I don't know what the casting process is like, but they really managed to get a, a girl who could play somebody who felt who had the weight of two hundred years on her shoulders. Yes, but did you know that Thomas Alfredson employed a trick? to make it feel even more that way, uh, which was the fact that the actual actress, L- L- Lena, did, did you say her name was? Yeah. Uh, um, he redubbed her voice uh, throughout the entire movie because her voice was, was you know, young and high and childlike and oh. it didn't feel right. So he got a mature woman to re-voice oh, wow. her. Yeah, isn't that smart? I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. I hope totally, I've just given you true I, mean, I, I hope that's not fake news. I hope <laughs> I've given you true information. That's certainly what I believe is the case. Uh that makes sense because her voice did seem a little out of body even though it worked. And yes. they also had a couple of the shots where he showed the old not a 200-year-old version but an adult version of her. Yes. That's right. There's only a couple of bits of CGI in that film. They, it's used incredibly sparingly, but but very effectively. Yeah, and I mean, um, just living proof that you can make a movie dealing with supernatural elements and not weigh it down with a bunch of fake shit. Yeah. You know? I mean, that movie's great, not because it's a vampire movie or a horror movie. It's It's great because it's a... It's a, it's a love story, right? I mean, isn't isn't that what people like oh, the most about that film? Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. I met Thomas Alfredson once or twice, and I remember him saying to me, "You know, it's not a vampire movie." Like I think somebody he'd been annoyed that somebody had called it a vampire movie. It's like, of course, it's not a vampire yeah. movie, and of course, it's not. No, it's a romance. Yeah, it's a romance, and it's it's about, a movie about young love. Yeah, and about bullying. It's about young love and bullying. Yeah, and he, I think he helps his case out too by not, it wasn't laden with vampire mythology, 
um, with, you know, garlic and wooden steaks and all that stuff. Like, I think literally the only piece of mythology was was from the title was him in that one scene inviting her in. Yes. And then all the blood comes from her eyes and ears. Yeah. Yeah. You need to invite me in. Yeah. Um, It's it's really so I think the reason why I was so, you know, moved by that film and it and it kind of affected me so powerfully is because, yeah, you know, I, I guess, you know, I like many people, you know, I was Oscar dreaming of an Ellie. In in by the way, a town right. that wasn't hugely unlike I mean the the kind of environment I grew up in wasn't hugely unlike the environment that Oscar grows up in. Uh huh. You know, kind of northern European you know, right. cold sort of I mean I lived in a pretty nice part of town but it was a pretty um you know working class town um so, yeah I think the yeah. the setting of that movie is so important mm-hmm. yeah so I really recognized myself in Oscar you know the the kind of school that I went to was kind of like Oscar's school the experience that Oscar's Oscar had was sort of similar to um the experience that I had and the only, you know, the main difference between me and Oscar was that I dreamed of someone like Ellie coming into my life to, you know, fall in love with and to kill the boys right. and it actually did happen to Oscar. So it's a kind of profound wish fulfillment film. Very cathartic, I imagine, watching that, that final pool scene. Yeah, though not cathartic, more sort of emotionally damaging, I'd say. <laughs> just sort oh of, really? Yeah, it just sort of bought all the old. I think as I lay there in bed that night, it just bought all the old wounds to the surface. I'd say the oh, opposite man. of cathartic. I wish it had been cathartic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I figured you would charge out of the theater, you know, like on like, a high. Yes, so like, when I, like, like at the end of Train Spotting <laughs> or Slumdog Millionaire, like bouncing down the street. Right, no, exactly. No, I walked out of that cinema with my head low and feeling upset. <laughs> oh no! Yes, I'm. I'm sorry you're having to talk about it. <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, since then, you know, uh, George Clooney was in one of my films. <laughs> That's <Right>. my Ellie. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of the pool scene, though, it was um, one thing that occurred to me when I was watching it was just how, like, without the CGI and all the overburdened effects and things that he didn't use. Um, some of the most like disturbing images I've seen in movies came from this movie. And that uh, pool just scene out of, in particular. Oh yeah, just out of sheer creativity. Like instead of having some huge, uh, gory, uh, fight at the end, it's all from that underwater perspective and you see that kid being yanked through the water and immediately <laughs> you know that that arm is fucking gonna float <laughs> down at some point, not attached to a body. Yeah. I know. Amazing. You know, like you can feel it. It's going to happen. So beautifully directed. He's really amazing, Thomas Alfredson, right? Um, Yeah. What what else did he he did? Tinker Taylor? Yeah. Which my friend Peter wrote um, by coincidence. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Peter Strawn, who I wrote Frank with, wrote Tinker Taylor, the screenplay, obviously. And in fact, he's just written... Thomas Alfredson's next film, which is the sequel to Tinker Taylor, uh, Smiley's People. Oh, great. So, so they've been working together ever since. Thomas Alfredson came to the uh, premiere of The Many Steric Goats and I um, saw him and I went up to him and I said, you know, I want you to know that Let the Right One In is my favourite film ever. 
and he looked very moved and said thank you and then Edgar Wright walked over to us and said to Thomas Alfredson I want you to know that um, Let the Light One In is my favourite film of the last six months <laughs> <laughs> and I said I just told him it's my favourite film ever <laughs> right <Yeah. laughs> he's like thanks a lot yeah <laughs> it's pretty funny yeah I just saw Baby Driver a couple of days ago, actually. That's really good, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah, I saw it with my son. You know, it came out the very same day. I'm sorry to keep bringing up Okja, um, but it came out the same day as Okja. And and weirdly, both films contain the same unusual line of dialogue, um, which is everything but the squeal. So what you know? Oh, really? What a coincidence that these two films would come out the same day, with both containing the line "everything but the squeal." Well, and interestingly, let the right one in. The first lines in the movie are about the squeal. That's right. That's right. They're making because Oscar, she references at the end. Yes, yeah, squealing. That's right. Which that's probably is that a reference to um, Deliverance? No, I was going to say. I remember mean, there's a bit of Deliverance in there, but I was going to say Lord of the Flies. Because don't, oh. don't don't they make piggy piggy? Yeah, yeah. Of course, I, I think being uh, maybe it's because I'm a middle aged American man. I hear squeal like a pig, and all I can think about is Ned Beatty being right. sodomized in the forest. Right. You see, when I in have deliverance, right? When I hear squeal like a pig, I think of or, or everything but the squeal. I think of um, the meat industry, which is what Ogre is in part about. Because there's a phrase oh. um, in in the pork industry that uh, like the amazing thing about pigs is that they're all it's all edible, everything but the squeal. So I oh. I stole that line for Okja and Edgar stole gotcha. that line for Baby Driver. <laughs> it's all Man, edible. That's fantastic. But the squeal, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe some more people will insert that line over the years, and that'll just be kind of one of those. Like the uh, Wilhelm scream. Oh, yeah, the Wilhelm scream. Like, yeah. It'll just be in like a hundred movies one day. Right. Yeah, it's a savage line. <laughs> Did you see uh, the remake? No. Let, let me in? No. I had, Even though I like Chloe Grace Moretz, you know, I'm a fan of hers. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I loved her in Kick-Ass. And so I felt she was a perfect person to play Ellie. But... You know, I love Let the Right One In so much. I, I I know I would have only felt annoyance and disappointment at, at the remake. Did you see the remake? I did. And I think that's a pretty, um, not brave, but uh, morally righteous choice to not see something mm-hmm. like that. Because I, I, it was a good movie. And it was one of the few times that I saw a remake of a foreign film that I was I was in uh, I don't know about in favor because it's always a little bit weird when people do that but I was like this is really good like they did right by it did a good job um, hmm. oh, okay so, that's so good. I don't think you should see it yeah I'm not recommending you see it uh-huh. but uh, you should feel feel good knowing that they did a, a good job they didn't uh, make it some like shitty American uh, kind of over the top thing they were really true to the source material. Speaking of which, my son told me a couple of days ago that he just saw the Nicolas Cage remake of The Wicker Man and was telling me oh some lines from it and it sounded unbelievable. The bee, he said, like, it's no line when Nicolas Cage is yelling, you know, the bees, the bees are in my eyes. 
I didn't see it. And that was like, that was like his version of The Wicker Man, by the way, is another one of my favorite films of all time. The original. Oh yeah. The original. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great movie. I saw that when I was in college. I went through, uh, I worked at a, at a kind of the best video store in, in Athens, Georgia mm-hmm. for a couple of years. And, um, you know, that uh, time when you're in college, when you start really getting into, independent film and cult films and that was when my eyes were kind of really cinematically open uh-huh. and i remember seeing the wicker man in college and uh probably over uh several joints with friends and um yeah my mind was kind of blown i was like man this is one of the most unsettling movies i've ever seen yeah yeah i it's incredible to think that it was made almost as like an afterthought like b movie for uh for Don't Look Now, right? That's that's how it first came out. It's like in a double bill of Don't Look Now as the lesser oh, of really? the two films. Yeah. How interesting. And I think it took a little while and then some of it got lost and they found some of it in some concrete in a in, in like a bridge. Like some of it got buried as landfill. And um so finally they sort of, you know, managed to piece it back together. But it wasn't a, it wasn't a respected film at all at the time. You know, its reputation just right. grew years later. Hi everyone, it's Katie Couric. I've used my podcast, Next Question, as a platform to explore the big issues we face in these crazy times. And right now there's no crazier time and no bigger issue than the coronavirus which is why we're switching gears and pushing our regular reported episodes to the summer. In the meantime, we're going to stay focused on the coronavirus, talking to the experts so you can really understand what's going on. I know it's overwhelming, but we can get through this together. You can listen to Next Question on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. We want you to know that we are here for you. All right, so we will end with a couple of little segments here that I've cooked up. Sure. Um, one of them is <laughs> one of them is called "What Ebert Said." This movie is a complete disappointment because uh, Robert, Roger Ebert was my favorite film critic of all time, and I'm always curious to go back in retrospect and see what he said about some of these movies. Right, and uh, you'll be delighted to know that he uh, gave. Let the right one in three and a half stars out of four. Hmm. What what did he lose and... <laughs> half the stuff for? There's only one flaw in that film. There's only one mistake in that film. And you know what it is. Oh, right? what's that? Oh, it's the uh it's the cats. The crotch shot? No, the cats. Uh, oh. That that was a great scene. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, don't, I don't like that scene. I think it's the one because it's slapstick and the film. You know, I I, I felt that the that moment of slapstick ruined the, you know, the, the the tone, the otherwise sort of melancholy tone of the film. But maybe I don't. know, Maybe I'm wrong. Well, that interesting slapstick because I didn't. Uh, I think sometimes did people laugh in the theater when that happened. I think there was a bit of awkward laughter. Surely a woman running around completely covered by cats. <laughs> See, I found it disturbing. Uh, that was one of the most like disturbing shots in the movie to me. Is um, But it's funny. I can see being at a theater full of people, and once a couple of people laugh at something, then it creeps into your head. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I can see that now. So what, what did he take half a star off um, for? He doesn't really uh, explain 
what he didn't like about it. Uh, are you just saying, why didn't he call it a perfect movie? Yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't the cats. Well, here, here was a pull quote. Uh, remove the vampire elements and this is the story of two lonely and desperate kids capable of performing dark deeds without apparent emotion. Kids washed up on the shores of despair. The young actors are powerful in draining roles. We care for them more than they care for themselves. Hmm. So that's what Ebert said. Yeah. I never thought that, I mean, it's a great line, but I disagree with one bit of it, I think, which he's, he says that they can um, perpetrate acts of violence without, he's almost sort of alluding to them being kind of psychopathic, like they do it without emotion. But I don't... Yeah, I, I didn't agree with that part either. Yeah, I think there's a lot of emotion in, in those two characters. Um, yeah, I mean, it was you know kind of a Swedes weird review, like. to be honest. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, Swedes tend to keep it all in. Um, yeah. So maybe he just wasn't used to, to the, to the keeping it all in of the Swedes. Yeah, that's a good point. I, yeah. I guess, um, well, although I don't think in the American version they overdid it. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, maybe he was looking for, you know, more outward emotion. Yeah. Other than that, it, it, I really like what he said because it's true. It's what we said too, right? Yeah, I think so. All right. So let's finish with this then. Uh, it's a little, uh, it's kind of a new thing I'm going to try and it's, and these could be quick answers, but it's it's five questions, okay. kind of just about your general film fandom. Okay. Um, what's the first What's the first movie you remember seeing in the movie theater? In the movie theater, I remember seeing two thousand and one, A Space Odyssey, and sleeping all the way through it. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. Oh, apparently uh, I saw Bambi, we... and and uh, I've been told, and then and. When Bambi's looking for for his mother, I apparently yeah. ran down the aisle and and yelled at the screen, "Your mother's dead!" <laughs> <laughs> apparently, I have no memory of that. Oh, that's fantastic! My wife still can't watch any of those uh, uh, Disney films now because she was so scarred by Bambi. She was like, "Someone dies in every one of them. Yeah. I can't do it." God, just wait till she sees Okja. <laughs> well, she's out of town, so I'm going to watch it tonight while she's gone. Okay. Um, what was your first R-rated movie that you saw? Um, well, where I came from, it was uh, there weren't there was no R. It was uh, X. Um, or, oh, yeah, or double A. Double A meant fifteen and above, and X meant eighteen and above. Um, All right. So I guess what was the first X? The first X I saw. It might have been. If it was an X, it might have been Rollerball. Uh, do you remember oh, Rollerball? Oh, yeah. James Caan? Yeah. Wasn't that? It could have been Rollerball. I remember there was a that bunch was of the... films I saw all at once, like when I was probably about 14 or 15. There was Rollerball. There was Death Race 2000. There was yeah. um, probably The Warriors and The Wanderers. Both of those films came out all uh, at the yeah. same time. I'd say my first X film was would have been one of those films. Okay. Yeah. Um, question three: Do you walk out of a bad movie if if it's bad enough? And if so, when what was the last movie you walked out on? I almost never walk out of bad movies, but I have done once or twice. There was one movie I can't remember the name of it, but it was it was about it was just so misogynistic. It was something to do with like a, a wedding or a, 
Bachelor Party. Maybe it was Bachelor Party. Was it called? Was there a movie called Bachelor Party? Oh yeah, Tom Hanks. I think young I walked, Tom Hanks. I think I walked out of Bachelor Party because of its misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a memory of that. Nice. I remember being in in Nantucket on vacation, and we went to see uh, Event Horizon. And I didn't walk yes. out, but halfway through the film, somebody walked out and yelled at the audience, "If you are, <laughs> if you have had any self-respect, you'd walk out too." <laughs> <laughs> By the way, going back briefly to Bachelor Party, I mean this is a long gone memory, but I think the reason why I walked out wasn't to do with the misogyny, but to do with uh, animal abuse. I've got a memory of of an animal being abused for comedy and I found it Yeah. I found it really yep. you know, really kind of abhorrent and I walked out. Yeah, I think there was definitely an animal, like a Donkey mule or, or something, something that showed up yeah. at the bachelor party. And they yeah. and something humiliating <laughs> happens to the donkey and that was the that that was the last straw. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then finally, the last question is um, not so much a question. Well, I guess it is a question. But what is John Ronson's movie ritual like? Do you sit in kind of the same area? Do you have a concession stand ritual? Oh, um, I, I always I like to go on my own to films. Um, I'm okay, quite me too. In, right? Yeah. Um, I always sit on the aisle. And I and I always sit very close to the front, so actually like front row aisle. In part because it's less likely that anyone's going to sit next to me. Um, okay. Yeah. So front row aisle. Uh, I um. Yeah, especially when my son was kind of young. I, in fact, I had like this kind of like a Tuesday night or Wednesday night. I would go off by myself to see a film. And it was like a, a night where I could sort of just be on my own for for a little while, yeah, know, away from the stresses of of being a, a young parent. But I still do it. Like I still go down to, I've got you know I'm, I I live in the Upper West Side of New York, so there's three or four really good cinemas sort of close to me. Um, there's Lincoln Lincoln Square, which is a really good independent cinema. Then there's a couple of really good multiplexes, and um, so there's always a whole bunch of good movies. Um, and yeah, I, uh, front row aisle concession stand. I don't really do that. Um, yeah, but the rest of it I do. Well, you've just given yourself away. So in New York city, <laughs> yeah. look for John Ronson on the, in on the Lincoln aisle front Square. row. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, John. Uh, everyone go out and watch Oakja on Netflix. Yes. And, uh, check out your audible uh, series. What's that called again? Uh, it's called The Butterfly Effect and it launches imminently. Um, in fact, it's probably already launched by the time you put this up. It will be, for sure. Okay, It's a seven-part series on Audible. We've been making it for about a year and a half. Those are my two newest things, Okja and The Butterfly Effect. All right. Well, it's good talking to you, buddy. And you. Go get some sleep. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. Well, what a delight that was. Boy, John Ronson, I love that guy. I just want to hug him every time I see him. Uh, he's just such a sweet guy. He's a very kind, considerate human being. 
Um, every time I've hung out with the dude, he just um, has a lot to say about, about a lot of interesting things. Just a really great conversationalist. And uh, I respect his work, value his opinion. So it's really neat to talk to him about Let the Right One In. Um, this one, as you could tell, he kind of got a little deep here with why this was his favorite movie. And uh, I thought this was really kind of neat. This was not nostalgia. This was not just a purely love of the craft and art of this film. Uh, but this one kind of hit home for John in a very personal way uh, from his own childhood and how he wishes that he had an Ellie of his own. Uh, when he was a kid, uh, growing up there in Cardiff, Wales. So very personal story from John. Got some great insight uh, into um, things I didn't know about the movie that he knew. Uh, he was kind of neat, uh, had spoken with the director before, and um, had a great little story about Edgar Wright there. That was a delight. So it was just all around fantastic to have John in here to talk about Let the Right One In. Uh, thanks for listening to Movie Crush this week. So until next week, keep your feet off the back of my seat for the love of God. Thanks for listening to Movie Crush. Have a great week. Movie Crush is produced, edited, engineered, and scored by Noel Brown from our podcast studio at Pond City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. Disgraceland, a music and true crime podcast about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, hosted by me, Jake Brennan, is back with season five. And you're not going to want to miss new episodes on Guns N' Roses, Jay-Z, Prince, Ozzy Osbourne, Nipsey Hussle, Run DMC, Selena, The Rolling Stones, and more. You can listen to Disgraceland on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. rock a roll Hello, this is Ron Burgundy, and you are listening to my voice, which commands trust and respect. Guess what? My podcast is back, and that's a win for everyone. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you probably already know the deal. Each week, I bring you hard-hitting journalism and also light entertainment. I contain multitudes. Find the Ron Burgundy podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 